Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power he led them out of that country. For about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled forty years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised his ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep your Bibles open to that passage as we look at Acts chapters 13 and 14 today as we continue our series on Acts. Uh, let me pray for us as we begin. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel, the good news of salvation for all who believe. We thank you that Jesus came to live the life we can't, to die the death we deserve, so that all those who believe in him might have the sure hope of the resurrection that we may have eternal life with you forever. And so may we hear the gospel afresh this morning. May we believe 
May we repent and may we receive the promise of salvation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up going to church. I went to kids' church. I went to youth group. I knew a lot about Jesus and I knew a lot about the Bible. But if I'm honest, I didn't take it seriously. It didn't really mean a lot to me growing up in church. Uh, Church was something I just did. Youth group was a bit of fun. Uh, At one point when I was in high school, I really wanted to believe in God and generally have faith in Him. Uh, So I thought I'd test God out. Uh, I basically made a plea to God. I said to God, if you're real, if you want me to take you seriously, if you want me to believe in the gospel, if you want me to become a Christian, then perform a miracle. Then I'll be convinced. Uh, So, for example, make an angel appear. Uh, or something like that, and I'll believe. I still remember going to bed every night, uh, and uh, I'll look over my doona cover to see if an angel appeared in the middle of the night so that I might believe that God is real. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I saw an angel that night, whether I'd really believe or I just wet my bed instead. But have you ever felt that way? Uh, maybe you're a Christian and you wouldn't mind God spicing up your life a little, with a miracle here or there. Uh, that would grow your faith, wouldn't it? That would strengthen your resolve uh, to, to stay firm as a Christian. Or maybe you're not a, yet a Christian. Maybe when you go to church, you wouldn't mind uh, seeing the dead raised uh, or the sick cured. Because if you did, then maybe then you'd believe that Jesus is real. Now some people, even Christians, believe that that's entirely reasonable. That, that is, that's what we should expect. That miracles should happen all the time. Uh, in 1985, almost 40 years ago now, an American pastor by the name of John Wimber uh, publishes a book to advocate for modern-day miracles, just like the ones we see in Acts. Uh, his book is called Power Evangelism, and it's had a huge impact on churches and how they do evangelism for decades. Uh, Christianity Today ra- uh, rates it as one of the top ten, uh, top 50, sorry books that have shaped evangelical Christianity ever since. Now, in case you haven't uh, read the book, Wimber's argument essentially is this. Christians must seek and boldly use miracles in public worship and preaching. Uh, And the reason given is this. On page 47, in Power Evangelism, resistance to the gospel is overcome by the demonstration of God's power in supernatural events. That is, there's resist, people resist to believe in the gospel, but if you perform a miracle or two, then that resistance is overcome. People will believe the gospel. And receptivity to Christ's claims is usually very high. So if you perform a miracle or two, then people will receive the gospel. Lots of people become Christians, as it were. So you might have been to a church that subscribes to power evangelism, or you might have seen it on TV or YouTube, where the focus of the service is not so much on the preaching and the proclamation of the word of God, but the miraculous healings that takes place, where the pastor lays his hands on the sick and the vulnerable, and instantly they're healed. Uh, The message of power evangelism is clear, isn't it? That is, the gospel and the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel is insufficient. It needs to be supplemented by miracles so that more will be saved. Without miracles, without these miraculous healing events, not many people will become Christians. The word of God is not powerful enough to save. Miracles are necessary to give people confidence that the gospel is true. After all, we see these sorts of miracles on almost every page in the book of Acts. 
which is the historical records of the church. So, for example, last year as we studied Acts chapters 1 to 12, we saw how in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul heals the lame man and he instantly walks. Peter prays for a dead girl in chapter 9 and she comes back to life. Peter's chained in prison, we saw last week in chapter 12. And an angel miraculously appears and, and rescues him. Uh, if the Apostle Peter is the central human figure in Acts chapters 1 to 12, where, he, where, where God demonstrates his power through the Apostle Peter, now in chapters 12 to, uh, 13 to 28, we see that the Apostle Paul is the central human figure. And as we cover his uh, 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 ministry and missionary work, we'll see God actively at work in and through him as well. And in today's passage alone, where Paul goes on his first missionary journey, he has a few missionary journeys. The first one lasts for three, four years, and it's captured and summarized for us in chapters 13 to 14. So Acts chapters 13 to 14 is Paul's first missionary journey. And here we see he's performing miracles left, right, and center. And so it's understandable when we read Acts, we wonder why the church isn't like that anymore. Why, why aren't churches filled with all these healing miracles? And so someone like Wimber comes along and says that we must seek it and we should expect it. And when we do, more people become Christians. So the question I have for you is that would you agree with him? I mean, if anything, it'd be pretty cool and amazing, wouldn't it? You're not vaccinated, that's all right. You've got COVID, come here. I'll lay my hands on you. Bang, you're, you're instantly healed. No fever, no chills, no symptoms, no vaccination. How amazing would that be? You just line up pastors and millions of people and all they do is no vaccinations, healed, 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 healed. Raise the dead. You die from COVID, come back to life. How amazing would that be? Surely lots of people become Christians if that happened. Or you've got cancer, well, come here. I'll just walk through the hospital and I'll just touch everybody's head and they're healed and the hospital will be out of business. How amazing would that be? Surely if that happened more people become Christians. Well, what I want to say today, and what I want to help you see today, is that the heart of the church's mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But that happens not through the performance of miracles, but through the proclamation of the Word of God. We see this pattern all through Acts, but it's especially clear in today's passage. So let me show you in Paul's first missionary journey, the last three, four years, that the heart and soul of his ministry, of his mission, is the proclamation of the gospel and not the performance of miracles. And we see this not just through the historical events that have been recorded for us, but also by the way it's been recorded for us by Luke, the doctor. The doctor who authored the gospel according to Luke and Acts. He helps us to see that the heart and soul of mission and ministry, back then and today, must be the proclamation of the gospel. So let's start with the historical events. So you have Paul and Barnabas, Paul the great apostle to the Gentiles. They're commissioned by their church in Antioch, in verses 1 to 3 in chapter 13. So we're going to cover both chapters. We only read the, the center, the middle part of it, but we're going to cover both chapters this morning. So they're sent as missionaries by their church. They go down to Seleucia and sail to Salamis. And what do they do? They don't go looking for the sick to heal them. They don't go looking for opportunities to perform miracles. What do they do in verse 5? They proclaim the gospel. They teach the Bible. When they arrive at Salamis, they proclaim the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. 
Then they travel through the whole region of Cyprus and end up on the other side of the island called Paphos. Now in Paphos there's an intelligent man. Uh, this man's called Sergius uh, Paulus. It's been recorded because everyone would have known him. If you're from that region, you would have known who this guy is. It's a bit like how we know who Daniel Andrews is. Who's he? Kids? Do you know? Daniel Andrews. The Premier. See, even our kids. See, the kids even know who Daniel uh, Andrews is. Well, if you were from this region, you would have known who Sergius Paulus is. He's the governor. He's the Premier. He's the proconsul. Intelligent man. In verse 7, we're told that he actually wants to hear the word of God. But there's a problem because there's a Jewish sorcerer. Uh, and this Jewish sorcerer is jealous and he, he gets in the way. He opposes Paul and Barnabas. He wants Sergius, the governor, the premier, to become, uh, he doesn't want him to become a Christian. He doesn't want him to hear from Paul and Barnabas. So Paul punishes the sorcerer. And he does this on the spot by causing this sorcerer to become blind instantly. Verse 11. Now the hand of the Lord is against you, Paul says to him. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and, the, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Instantly, a miracle was performed. He wanted to stop the proconsul from hearing the gospel. Paul performs an extraordinary miracle that happens instantly. Now Sergius Paulus, the proconsul, witnesses all this. He sees it happen, and he becomes a Christian. Now, what do you think convinced him to become a Christian? Was it the miracle? Well, have a look at verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. But what does it say next? For he was amazed by what? At the teaching about the Lord. It was about the teaching of the Lord, not the miracle itself. That was the heart and center of why the proconsul believed. You see, the heart of Paul's mission was the preaching of the word of God and not miracles. Uh, we, we see the same point made in another miracle story in today's passage. So, so chapter 13, what we just looked at, this miracle story happens at the start or is recorded for us at the beginning of Paul's missionary journey. Now in chapter 14, towards the end of his missionary journey, we read of another miracle. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. There, there was a plot to stone him. So they flee to Laconian, uh, the Laconian cities, and what do they do? They, again, don't seek to look for the sick to heal them, but, or, or opportunities to perform miracles. They go to proclaim the word of God. They teach the Bible. Chapter 14 now, verse 6. Chapter 14, verse 6. So Saul and, uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Dab and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. You see, their motivation in their journey, in their mission, in their ministry was always the proclamation of the gospel. And, and, and as Paul pre is preaching the gospel, he notices a lame man. Just as Peter noticed a lame man in chapter 3, now Paul notices a lame man in chapter 14, who couldn't walk his entire life, completely lame. And so Paul calls out to them, stand up on your feet. And the man jumps up, begins to walk, instantly healed. Another amazing miracle. Now what do you think happens? This extraordinary miracle, if you see it, would everyone believe the gospel? Well, far from it. The crowd think the, the, the crowd ends up thinking that Paul and Barnabas are mythological Greek gods. They, they think Paul's Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus in chapter 14, verse 11. So the priest of Zeus comes and starts offering sacrifices to them to start worshipping them. 
So Paul and Barnabas respond by tearing their clothes in verse 14, explain that they're only me men, and then go on to explain the gospel. Verse 15, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now eventually, so, so the miracle doesn't lead people to become Christians. The miracle leads people to idolatry. And eventually the Jews win the crowd over, and if it's not sad enough that no one becomes a Christian, despite the miracle, everyone turns against Paul and try to stone him to death. So Paul and Barnabas leave Lystra for Dab, and what do they get there? What, what do they do when they get there? They preach the gospel. So have you started noticing a theme? Everywhere they go, what they're trying to do is not perform miracles. Miracles seem to deter people, they seem to lead people astray. They go to preach the gospel. Verse 21, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. So when they performed the miracle, it led to idolatry and people wanting to stone them to death. When they preached the gospel, many became Christians. In Lystra, uh, and so this, this completely contradicts what Wimbo is saying, isn't it? There, the resistance to the gospel is not overcome by healings, but the healings can become distractions to the gospel. You see, friends, it's the preaching of the word of God alone that saves people. Miracles have a place and purpose, absolutely. But it's not a guarantee that it will help anyone believe. In fact, the opposite is true. It can distract them from the gospel. So that's the historical event. We see the miracles, but we also see that they can be distractions. We see the agenda. Paul and Barnabas go from city to city to proclaim the gospel, not to look for people to heal. Now, it's just not just the historical events that makes it clear that the heart and center of mission and ministry is the preaching of the word of God. The, the, the literary structure that the doctor, the good doctor Luke, composed for the first mission uh, of Paul in chapters 13 and 14 also makes the same point. Now you might remember from a couple of weeks ago before Easter that I talked about the chiastic structure, the Greek literary style. We, we saw it in Mark chapter 13 and we see it again here. You actually see it everywhere in the New Testament. You, so you might recognize this berg on the screen and so you, you, you might remember that I used it to explain that the chiastic structure, the Greek literary writing style, focuses its point on the meat on the center and heart of what the passage is about. And you have to get to the heart to understand the rest. And so notice what Luke does here. We already, I've already tried to allude to it. So in Acts chapter 13 and 14, this is, this is a complete mini, uh, uh, mission, the first mission of Paul. Okay. At the start of chapter 13, what do we see? A miracle. At the end of, his, uh, of chapter 14, of his missionary journey is a miracle. Okay, so you've got the sandwich, as it were. The ends, miracle and miracle, beginning of chapter 13 towards the end of chapter 14. But then right in the middle, what is the heart? Well, that's what Meredith read out to us. And what was it? It was a sermon. It was a proclamation of the gospel. You see, the heart, so what, what Luke is trying to show us not just from recording the historical events, but by the way he puts the mission work together, is to show that the heart and soul of Paul's mission work was the proclamation of the gospel. So verse 
38, chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. You know, after all that preaching, Paul doesn't perform one miracle as, as far as we know. And what happens? Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So when they heard the word of God, they honoured it, not by demanding miracles, but by believing the word of God preached. And what spread wasn't miracles. What spread was the word of God throughout the region. You see... Both the historical event and the literary structure of Paul's first missionary journey points to the heart of the proclamation of the gospel as the heart of mission and ministry and not miracles. And so if the heart of mission is the preaching of the gospel, then you might be wondering why there's so many miracles in Acts. Why were there so many miracles in the first century when this church was being established and why aren't there these miracles happening all the time now in our churches. Well, we're actually told why. So have a look at chapter 14, verse 3. We're told why in chapter 14, verse 3, it was to confirm that the gospel is true. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, that is in Iconium, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So see what's happening? It's the Lord Jesus who confirms his message through his apostles by enabling them to perform these miracles, these signs and wonders. Jesus is doing this through his apostles. And so let me remind you about how this works. Now you might know the Exodus story when the Israelites were slaves. How would they know that God has sent them a prophet to rescue them? While well, God raised up Moses and enabled him to perform signs and wonders so that not only the Israelites will know that he is a prophet of God, but that the Egyptians will too. And he performed the ten mighty acts of judgment, the plagues, for example. They were never to be repeated again because he had a specific purpose and was given a specific ability to be able to show that he is God's spokesman. And the same thing is happening now. Just as God confirmed Moses' message through signs and wonders, so God is now confirming the message of the gospel through his apostles, through signs and wonders. And since that message has now been confirmed, just as Moses' miracles are never to be repeated again, so the miracles of the apostles are never to be repeated again for the same purpose, to confirm the message of the gospel. Because the gospel has been confirmed. You don't need to confirm it again. And so that's why we don't see it today. Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It's on the screen. Paul says, I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. How? including signs, wonders, and miracles. See, since the gospel has been confirmed and authenticated by Jesus, 
Time and time again, in the early church, through Peter and Paul, as the apostles, and amongst others, it doesn't need to be confirmed again. It's now written and recorded for us in the Bible. And so what we need is the Bible and the Word of God being preached, not miracles to confirm it again. Not even by an angel. Galatians 1 tells us that. So when I was a young teenager and I wanted to see an angel so that I might believe the gospel, uh, since then, I still haven't seen an angel. And I'm thankful I haven't. I'm glad God is wiser than I am and that he saved me some, from such foolishness. And I pray that you will know why now as well from this passage. You see, if I believed in Jesus because I've seen an angel, then my belief isn't in the sure and certain and confirmed word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in a supernatural experience. And the danger with that is that my assurance and my belief will easily waver as my experiences and my feelings come and go, and not in the sure and certain and concrete promise that God will save me in Christ as proclaimed in his word. And so, thankfully, when I was in year 10, I came to believe in the gospel when I heard it afresh. And I became a Christian when the word of God was proclaimed to me. You see, friends, what we need isn't to believe in power evangelism. What we need is to believe in the power of the gospel. In 1990, John Wimber and his crew from Vineyard Ministries came to Australia. They came to run some rallies to promote what they were doing. It was called the Spiritual Warfare Conference. And as part of understanding his ministry and power evangelism, three leading evangelicals in Sydney met with Wimber to discuss his views. Uh, This included Philip Jensen, John Woodhouse and David Cook. One of the things that they wanted to understand was whether a miraculous interventions by God is actually taking place in Wimber's ministry. And so to make it as objective as possible and to eliminate any uh, a possibility of the placebo effect, they asked Wimber about healing children with Down syndrome. Now they, 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 they chose Down syndrome uh, because it was an ideal test case. Since it's relatively easy to diagnose genetically before and after any so-called healing takes place. So Wimber claimed that he prayed over 200 children with Down syndrome, but only one of them showed a sign of any such healing. But even though this child had been so-called healed, he still looks like he has Down syndrome, but at least he's now at the lower end of the normal range in education. So there appeared to be some improvement. Now this sounds very encouraging, doesn't it? But Philip Jensen reports on this, and his report's much less encouraging. This is what he has to say. The healing rate, then, for Down syndrome is 0.5%. And the healing that did take place was only partial, unlike Jesus' healings, because you know from the apostles in Jesus, the healing's always in full. Why this disease is so resistant, John, that is John Wimber, has no idea. On further consultation with doctors... Working in this area, we have been assured that for a Down syndrome child to be in the low end of the normal range of academic achievement is not unusual or remarkable, let alone miraculous. From a medical viewpoint, John Wimber's 0.5% success rate with Down syndrome is less than is achieved through the efforts of health professionals. 
That is, it didn't do anything at all. And in fact, the outcome is worse than what medical science can help us with. So please don't hear me, though, say that God can't miraculously heal today. He can. Absolutely. He can, he can do whatever he wants. And indeed, I'm sure he continues to perform miraculous healings. But what he doesn't do, as far as we know from Scripture, is the need to confirm the authenticity of the gospel with signs and wonders and miracles again and again. He doesn't need to do that because he's been done and dusted. The apostles have come and gone. The gospel's been authenticated. We have it in Scripture. Nor does God need us to perform miracles and healing so that people might not resist the gospel. What we must now do is not believe in power evangelism, but in the power of the gospel. So as we go about running our church services or evangelistic events, we don't manipulate with music. We won't give false assurances about God's interventions. We, and we certainly won't make false promises about what God can do for your health or your prosperity. What we will do is preach the gospel and proclaim Christ crucified. We will teach the Bible and call everyone to everlasting life. And we want everyone to make an informed decision. Uh, so I'm so glad that Esther mentioned Christianity Explored because it's a free course. It's a great opportunity to read the Gospel of Mark, to ask questions, to investigate, to make an informed decision for all those who believe in Jesus and turn to him for salvation, the forgiveness of sins, will receive eternal life with him forever. Amen.